love, and it is extravagant. You know, you, you work on these sermons all week long and try to cram it into a 30-minute period of time, and it's just about impossible. <laughs> it's hard because there's so much to say. That's why we do sermon series, to try and cover more ground. And, you know, I usually preach about 30 minutes, 35 minutes, so please, I hope there's grace this morning. I know there is, to go 10 minutes after maybe this morning. I, I don't take your time for granted. I hope you know that. I don't take that lightly. I just take for granted that you'd sit here all day and listen to me drone along. So thank you for hanging in there. I do feel like the Lord gave me this for you today. And so we might go five or 10 minutes after 12 if that's all right. No Greater Love is the theme of our current sermon series. And today we continue the series with a message about the extravagance of God's love and how that relates to our love for Him and for each other. God's love for us is extravagant. We, we know that, or at least we should. He gave us His Son to die for us in our place so that we wouldn't have to. That is extravagant love. And because of this sacrifice, we're able to place our faith in Christ and become children of God, heirs with Christ. All right, 1 John 3 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That is extravagant love. Not even death could stop him from carrying out this ultimate act of love for us. And we talk about this act of sacrifice in church all the time, as we should. But I wonder sometimes if the idea of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross hasn't become such a common aspect of our religious conversation and culture that we don't always fully appreciate the gravity and the significance of what he did for us. We wear crosses and we sing about the cross and we have bumper stickers and t-shirts and, and that's all good. Obviously, our entire faith is based on this sacrificial act, and so those things aren't wrong. That's good. It's subsequent resurrection, right? It's all, uh, it is the dynamic of the gospel, but just exactly who and what did he die for? A world full of really polite church people, right? Of course not. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. The same people who had carried out every sick, perverted, murderous, hateful, evil, blasphemous, deviant, and heinous activity that, that could possibly be imagined in the face of God throughout the Old Testament. Those same people. The same people that spit in his face and ripped out his beard by the handful and beat him and mocked him and nailed him to the cross in the New Testament. Those people, the same people that have cheated on their taxes and lied to their friends and lusted over their neighbors and coveted every material possession that you can dream of in our world today. And every person who's ever fallen or ever will in the future fall short of his glory. Those are the people that he died for. You and I. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2.2. 2. He subjected himself to the worst possible death for every one of us while we were yet sinners, Romans 5.8. We talked about all this last week. We cannot overstate, and we should not forget the profound nature of his sacrifice, despite our depravity, because of his extravagant love for us. Okay, God's love is extravagant, and today we're going to look at the implications of that love in our own lives, because it's easy to talk about a sacrifice for us in a way, because He's God, 
And after years spent in church, for those of you who have been believers for any period of time, you know that from reading scripture and listening to countless sermons that this is the kind of God that he is. He loves extravagantly. We just heard a song about it. Most of us have probably come to expect at some level God to be loving as we should, right? But of course God loves us. Of course he sacrifices for us. He's God and that's how he is. That's actually who he is. However, what I think may not always come as naturally to us is the expectation that we're supposed to love him back the same way that he loves us. And to take that a step further, I mean, we talk about it, but do we really get that all the time? The implications of loving him the way that he loves us. What exactly does that mean? What, is, what does that look like? What is really involved there? Okay, that's what we're going to talk about. We know that in Matthew 22, 37 and 38, when asked which is the greatest commandment, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind this is the great and first commandment that's it top of the list the first and greatest commandment love God with everything you've got okay but what does it look like what does that really look like how how do I do that again last week we talked about feelings is it simply a matter of feeling really really strongly about the Lord this intense sensation of affection toward him well no no, actually, that is a byproduct of truly loving God. But it is not in and of itself loving Him. So, so what is? What does it mean to, to love Him? Well, the short answer is pure devotion. Okay, devoted to God in every way and in every aspect of our lives, you see. It's not just our actions, although our actions are very much a part of it. It's not just our attitude, although our attitude is very much a part of it. It's not just what we give, although what we give is very much a part of it. And it's not just our feelings, although feelings are certainly a part of it. Loving God like he loves us is all of that together. It's pure devotion. It's loving him with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. Okay, that's pure devotion to God. So let's turn, if you have your Bibles, to the Gospel according to John, chapter 12. John 12, and we're going to read the first eight verses, and we'll sort of get a visual of just what that should look like in our lives today, okay? This account here, this get-together between Jesus and his closest disciples and his friends, includes one of the most outlandish, over-the-top, almost ridiculous acts of extravagant love recorded anywhere in the Bible, just behind Christ's own sacrifice on the cross for us. And as we really take a close look at this text, we can discern some of the different aspects of loving extravagantly, okay? So John 12, starting on verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Okay? Here we have Jesus and his followers in Bethany on a Saturday night before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Bethany was a village about two miles uh, from Jerusalem on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And Mary's there. This is Mary, the, 
the uh, sister of Martha and Lazarus, that's the Mary we're talking about. So it's Saturday night. They've gathered at, gathered at Simon the leper's house. We know that because the account of this same event in Matthew 26 uh, says, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, okay? And there's general agreement by scholars here that Simon had almost assuredly been healed by Jesus already because lepers were not permitted to live with the general population. But here we see Simon hosting a meal at his own home. So here we have Simon and Lazarus. Two guys, both, who literally, physically owe their lives to Jesus. Simon cured of leprosy. Lazarus raised from the dead at the same house with Jesus, along with his disciples and some others. And they're reclining around the table for dinner. We'll come back to Simon and Lazarus and his disciples in a moment and talk about the significance of their response to this event. But first, let's continue on with verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Thank you. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Can't you just hear John's disdain here for Judas at this point? You know, there were actually others at this time who were grumbling about Mary's behavior as well. And we'll see that in a moment. But John really hones in on Judas, which is understandable given the, what has happened. And of course, this is being written after all of that, right? But the significance of this passage that I want to point out was that this act of anointing by Mary was a great example of extravagant love. And it demonstrates that this kind of love, extravagant love, is excessive. Okay? As believers... Christ followers, we often live counter to the culture, or at least we're supposed to, when the culture is in conflict with the Word of God. And I believe that the culture of our day is increasingly opposed to the teachings of Scripture, just as it was in Paul's day, and just as it was in much of the Old Testament. In fact, referring to many of the Old Testament saints, Hebrews 11, 13 through 16 says... These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking, homeland, seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This world is not our home. Our culture as Christians is kingdom culture. And often that's in tension with the current culture of the society that we live in. That's why Romans 12.2 tells us, do not be conformed to this world. Okay? And interestingly enough, if you think about what our society says about excess or at least elements of our society, it's often in contrast with what the Word of God teaches. The Bible says, don't drink too much. Don't eat too much. Don't be promiscuous. Refrain from harsh language. Don't hoard your money. Even when referring to the spiritual gifts, something so good and right, Paul warns the churches about excessive behavior. 
Okay, the Bible teaches self-control and moderation and balance in just about every area of life. Now, I realize that beer commercials say, please drink responsibly at the end of their advertisement. And people talk about healthy eating and such. But honestly, if you pay attention to advertising much at all, we're constantly inundated with excess. You, you can't have too much, according to the world. Too many parties, too many women, too many shoes, ladies. Too much money in your accounts. If you've ever been on a cruise and seen the buffet tables, how many of you have ever been on a cruise? My goodness, have you seen the buffet tables in a cruise with every kind of food imaginable? There's no moderation being promoted. We live in a culture that is excessively excessive. We're obsessed with more of everything because we deserve better. We, we deserve more, and more always brings happiness, right? And when you've had too much, Pat can tell you, he's a pharmacist, just take a pill. Take a diet pill or take a Tylenol to ward off the hangover or a morning after pill so your promiscuous sex can be protected, right? We have a pill for just about everything these days. The truth is, personal gain and excess have become foundational to our culture. And that is in opposition to what the scripture teaches us. And yet, there's one thing. There's one devotion about which the Bible says, you just go ahead and be crazy. Just go for it. Go crazy. What is it? You guessed it. It's love. The greatest commandment is to love God and the second greatest is to love each other. And we cannot love too much. When it comes to loving God and loving each other, God says, be excessive. Over the top. In fact, Romans 12.10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Okay, so go ahead. Go nuts. Love like you've never loved before with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength because when it comes to love, we should be excessive. But you know what the world says? Hang on a minute. Don't, don't be rash. I mean, when it comes to love, we need to be responsible and measured. So let's get a, a prenuptial agreement in case things don't work out in the marriage. Let's hold on loosely. We don't want to get our feelings hurt. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. I'll, I'll love you as long as you love me back. Protect yourself and stand up for yourself so you're not taken advantage of, right? Don't let others in too far because as long as we keep each other at arm's length, no one can hurt me. It's just the opposite of what Christ taught. John 15, 12, and 13, Jesus said, This is my commandment, that you love one another. How? As I have loved you, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You see, that's what Mary was doing when she anointed Jesus at Simon's house. She was laying down her life for him. How? How was that laying down her life for him? Well, let's go back to our text and see just how excessive her love was for Jesus. Okay, John chapter 12, verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. Okay? Stop there a minute. Nard, the oil that she brought out, was imported from northern India, and it was extracted from this Indian or Arabian root. It was very, very expensive. And pure nard was a perfume oil in its pure form that was used for 
solemn acts of devotion. This was not the kind of oil that was commonly used to anoint guests. They would sometimes anoint guests, but not with pure nard. So the fact that Mary's brought out this very expensive and uncommon oil was already something to take notice of. But on top of that, she brings out a pound of this stuff, which we learn in verse 5 is worth 300 denarii, which, by the way, is the equivalent of over a year's salary in their day. And what does she do with it? She breaks it open, and the rest of verse 3 says, she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Matthew and Mark's accounts of this same act both say that she anointed Jesus' head with the oil. And given the very large quantity that there was that she brought out in the corroborating accounts here, we believe that she anointed Jesus' head and then used what was left to anoint his feet, okay? So let's just take a minute and try and put this into perspective. Think about how much money you make in a year. Is that $30,000? dollars $40,000? $50,000? $75,000 a year? You know, $100,000 a year? I have no idea what any of you make. But think about whatever that number is for you. Your annual income. Okay? Now imagine you have that much money in cash. In a, in a suitcase in your house somewhere. And that's pretty much all that you have. There's no 401k. There's no other investments. There's no savings. Just that year's salary in cash in a suitcase back in your closet. And you've invited some friends over for dinner on a cold winter's evening. And, and there's one really special friend that you know is coming. Like your best friend of all time. Teenagers like your BFF. Okay? And your other friends that are coming owe him a lot, just like you do. He's done a lot for you. In fact, a couple of your friends owe him their lives, okay? You're getting the picture. So you really want to get this dinner right. You really want to show your special friend how much you love him. And so when everyone is gathered at your house, and it's cold outside because it's wintertime, instead of using the nice seasoned red oak firewood to heat your fireplace with, which is what everyone uses in the wintertime, instead of doing what is common, you do something uncommon. You slide your best friend's chair right up to the hearth and you go back to your closet and you come out with a suitcase full of cash. A year's worth of your salary. It's pretty much all that you have other than what's in your house. You open up that suitcase and you begin to stack up that pile of cash in the fireplace right in front of your friend. You strike a match and you light it up. Because you want to show your friend how much he means to you, how important he is. I'm willing to make you warm by burning everything that I have. Everything of value that I've saved up just to keep you warm for the evening. What would happen in that moment? Realistically, what would happen? Your other friends, first of all, even the ones who owed their lives to this special friend would say, are you crazy? Stop. Tell him to stop burning all the cash. This is ridiculous. If you want to honor our friend, use the money to help the, the poor in his name or buy someone a car that can't afford it or pay someone's rent for a few years. But don't burn it, right? It makes no sense. It really does seem ridiculous when you think about it. Even well-meaning, well-intentioned believers would cry foul. Say, hey, stop. You're wasting something so useful, something so expensive, something that's precious and uncommon. Yet this is exactly what Mary did. 
and the disciples cried foul. Matthew 26, 8 and 9. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Mark 14, 4 and 5 says, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, indignantly, sorry, Why was the anointment wasted like that? For this anointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And then it says, and they scolded her. Okay? They're letting her have it for what she's doing. Let me ask you this. Do you think that Mary regretted what she did? I don't. I don't think she regretted it for one second. Because compared to Jesus, whom she loved so extravagantly, so excessively, the oil was worth nothing in comparison. Yet it was the most costly possession she had, and she gave it all to him. In that beautiful moment, that solemn moment, amidst the protests of her other friends, even as they were scolding her, she didn't care. Because she was in the presence of the one who is worth more than all the money in the world. And she knew it. The next verse in Mark, Jesus responds to the complaints of the disciples. I love this. He says, leave her alone. Why have you troubled her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. Man, what a story. I mean, think about the reality of what just happened. What is your most prized possession in the whole world? For many, it's money. For some, it's material possession. For some, it's their status, their career, their position. I just wonder sometimes how many of us, and I include myself, how many of us would be willing in a moment to give it all up for Jesus Christ without hesitation and without regret? Would you give up everything that you have for Him? Mary did. And she's meant to be an example for all of us. Verse 9 of the same passage in Mark. Jesus said, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. She is to be an example for all of us. Last week we talked a little bit about finances before the sermon. I talked about it today. And I told you, I've been hesitant to do that. I've never talked about money in this church. Because I'm not a prosperity gospel guy. It makes me sick. It turns my stomach. We, we've sold out the depth and beauty of the gospel for the promise of bigger houses and newer cars. It's, it's, it's wrong and it's evil. But the tithe is 10% of our income. And sometimes we struggle so much with giving 10% of our income. But Mary gave everything she had because she recognized the greater value of the one that she served. So I ask again, what, what are you willing to give? What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to lose for him? My family and I have been on this journey that you are aware of for several years now. We don't regret it. I don't regret walking away from a lucrative career and selling all our stuff. We had to give up some things. It wasn't easy, but what you find is it's not only what he's called all of us to do, it's in fact very liberating. We're going to talk about that some more in a minute when you begin to let go of some things that we hold so dearly. But we've also found that in the midst of sacrifice and dedication, he brings provision and fulfillment and not just what you need. He brings blessing. In the last several weeks, we've been blessed by some people like in ways you could never imagine. Things I haven't earned or worked for, just blessed. I know it's because we're following Christ. And we've, we've sacrificed for him. When we stop holding on to all of these material trappings that are so dear to us and give up everything we have, we give it all over to him, 
he brings blessing far beyond that which we gave up. And I'm not telling you, by the way, you shouldn't have nice things or nice cars and a nice house. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when those things become an idol, when we worship those things more than we follow Christ, it's time to let go. And that's where I was several years ago. I had three homes, motorcycles, Land Rovers, BMWs, campers, boats. I had everything a guy wanted. And they were idols in my life. And the Lord said, it's time to cut the cord, pal. And I had to walk away from all of it. And now he's bringing blessing back into my life. And my attitude is completely adjusted. It's in the letting go and giving up of ourselves and our resources and our time and our passion and our talents and our commitment to him. And we find fulfillment in that place, which is, by the way, what everyone is looking for. You know, for some people, it isn't about money. Some people, it's about their time. Uh, different people hold different things dear. That's generally the one thing he wants from you because he wants what's closest to your heart. And when you do that, whatever it is, I'm telling you, you find real fulfillment in your life, which is what we all want. We're looking for fulfillment in some capacity or another. Fulfillment is found in loving extravagantly, excessively. That is pure devotion to Christ, okay? So how do we get to this place? Let's move on. How do we get to the place where we're purely devoted to him, where we're living extravagantly? The answer is that that kind of life is found in a life submitted to Christ. It's in a life submitted to Christ. We read in verse 3 of our original text in John chapter 12 that Mary anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. You have to understand that culturally, Jewish women almost never unbound their hair in front of other people. Okay? Not in public. That was generally unacceptable. It was, was not cool in the society. So for her to let her hair down and then begin to wipe the oil all over Jesus' feet with her hair was a symbol of intense uh, personal devotion and excess of this extravagant love as well. It was a very socially risky thing for her to do. But it was also an incredible act of humility. Mary abrogated her own honor. She, she gave up her own honor. And any pride she may have had to show honor and complete submission to Jesus Christ. It's a tremendous reflection of what was at the core of this woman's heart. Totally submitted to Christ. And here's the cool thing. Did you know that this same Mary, she has basically three real cameo appearances in Scripture. And in each one, she's found at Jesus' feet. Okay, it's a pattern in her life. Luke 10, 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. This is the same Mary. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. When everyone else is doing their thing, there's Mary at the feet of Jesus, submitting herself to him and his teaching. Life's really busy, isn't it? I know it is. It's easy for me, even doing ministry, church work, to get so caught up in what's urgent that I sometimes neglect what's important. Do you know what I mean? Listen, don't sacrifice what's important for the sake of what's urgent. Okay? 
Don't sacrifice what's important for the sake of what's urgent. Make what, make what is urgent in your life kneel in reverence to what is truly important in your life. Make it submit to what's important in your life. You'll see things change. Your time spent with the Lord, time spent in prayer, time spent in His Word, time spent in devotion with your family, time spent in worship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, what we do here, is more important than the laundry. It's more important than the lawn. It's more important than deadlines or Facebook. It's more important than being on time for every appointment. Do you know that? Saying yes to everything. It's more important than that. And that now I'm convicted. Okay? Let's not sacrifice what's important in life for what is urgent. Mary knew this well. We find Mary again at the feet of Jesus. John 11, 29 through 33. Her brother Lazarus, as you know, had died. And Jesus was there, wasn't there to stop it from happening. And when her sister Martha, again, tells her that Jesus was coming to see them. And Martha's always sort of running around in a panic. This is how Mary responded. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now... Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise and quickly go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. This is her pattern, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You understand this wasn't a rebuke by Mary. It was rather an incredible statement of her faith in Jesus Christ. If you'd been here, there was Mary at his feet again, submitted to him even in her sorrow, because she knew what he was capable of. See, even when everything in our lives goes wrong, when it's all haywire, the only appropriate place for us to run is directly to the feet of Jesus submitted to him, believing in who he is and in what he's capable of. And what happens when we do that? Verse 33, And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. His extravagant love for us is put on display when we submit ourselves to him in humility. He has great compassion for us. And what did he do? He met their needs. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Okay, so often when we're distraught, we don't know what to do, and so we grasp for every possible solution we can find or think of, but Mary knew exactly what to do. She ran straight to Jesus, and she fell in submission at his feet. We should be doing the same thing in our times of trouble, in good times and in troubled times, because ultimately, he's always the solution, right? And finally, of course, we find Mary, as we've already read, kneeling before Jesus, using her hair to wipe the oil over his feet. Listen, the only way that we will ever be able to truly love extravagantly is when we live our lives in submission to Christ, because that is where we find his extravagant love for us. And that's how we learn to love each other and to learn him. See, on our own, we'll never have the capacity to love extravagantly. But at his feet, when we're submitted to him and to his will, he gives us the strength and courage and humility that we need to love extravagantly. There's no more wonderful place to be than at Jesus' feet. So perhaps we should ask ourselves where we've been lately. Have we been too busy or too proud, too self-reliant, 
at his feet was Mary's favorite place to be. It was a pattern in her life. You know, patterns become habits. Habits can change who we are. Okay? Good and bad. That works both ways. Her favorite place to be was at Jesus' feet. When she, we see her there in times of sorrow. We see her there in times of joy. We see her there in times of receiving and in times of giving. We see her there when everything is right in her world and when everything's falling apart. Because her motive was love. And it's not that it didn't cost her anything. It cost her everything she had. But to her, Jesus was worth so much more. Okay? Could the same be said of us? Have we given anything to God recently? Not because we were expected to, but just because we wanted to. I believe that when this kind of extravagant love exists in our lives, there's a natural desire to sacrifice for the object of our affection and our devotion. And the cost to us is almost irrelevant at that point. Because that which we sacrifice for is worth so much more. Guys, you remember dating your wife before you were married? You know, it didn't, it didn't matter where she was or what she was doing or how late it was or how early I had to get up for work or what it cost me to get there. I would have, I would have bought a plane ticket and rented a boat and paddled my way there if I had to, to get to her. She was the object of my devotion, of my affection, this extravagant love. There was no cost. It didn't matter. It was irrelevant to me. It didn't matter. I was willing to sacrifice because of my love for her. Okay? Extravagant love is excessive. And it's found in submission to Christ. And finally, and I will hurry, as I mentioned earlier, extravagant love is liberating. When you love extravagantly, it actually sets you free from the trappings of this world and the expectations that we take upon ourselves that are largely cultural and man-made. Okay, Mary was being scolded, re reprimanded by the disciples, her friends, for her act of extravagant love toward Jesus because their expectations were worldly. And she could have easily caved into that pressure, but she didn't. And again... I don't believe she regretted it for one second. She was free from the burden of man's expectations because she was consumed by her extravagant love for the Lord. And, and of course, she was validated by Jesus as he said to them, leave her alone. She's doing something beautiful. When you live a life extravagantly loving Christ and others, the world's expectations almost begin to fade away, don't they? We talked about it earlier. The world says, guard yourself. Don't get hurt. Don't, don't put yourself out there. Trust in yourself. But that's not what Mary did. You see, she was so lost in extravagant love for Jesus Christ. She didn't have time for those voices. So you go right ahead and protest, boys. I'm just going to keep dumping oil on the feet of my Lord. You can do whatever you want to. Right? Extravagant love is liberating from the expectations of this world. It's also liberating from our own sin. There was another incident that we read about in Luke chapter 7, similar to that of Mary anointing Jesus' feet with her hair. Sometimes people confuse this with the same event in the other Gospels as Mary anointing Jesus, but it wasn't. It was a different event at a different time in Jesus' ministry. This was a different woman, a different act of anointing, it was different critics and a different response, okay? Mary's anointing of Jesus at Bethany was six days before the Passover and just before his triumphal entry. The event in Luke is much earlier, way earlier in Christ's ministry. So let's look at what happens as a result of this woman's extravagant love for Christ. Luke 7, starting on 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, 
when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. So Jesus, knowing the man's heart, starts lecturing him about his attitude. Now skip down to verse 44. Jesus says to the Pharisee, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Wow, does love really help us to overcome sin? 1 Peter 4, 7 through 10. And the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Kayla just sang about it. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. In other words, love extravagantly because love overcomes the world. 1 John 5, 1-5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that when we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Extravagant love is liberating. Okay, It covers a multitude of sins. It liberates us from the expectations of this world. It liberates us from bitterness and envy and from strife. We could do a whole study just on the liberating effects of extravagant love. Okay, But the point here is that when you love God and others like He loves us, all of the other voices that drone on so deviantly in our ears, all the, the doubts and fears of this life, you know, all the uncertainty, all of the competing voices that vie for our attention, that, that want us to worry and fret, those voices that love dissension and gossip and trouble, those voices that whisper in those dark places in our lives, you'll never make it. You're going to you're gonna fail. You're, you're going to embarrass yourself, you know. You're not good enough. On and on and on and on. All those voices fade away. And you stand liberated, full of the extravagant love of God. And that is all that matters. When all of the voices began to chatter and come against Mary, there was only one voice that mattered. And it cut right through all of the complaints and the fevered pitch, the protest, the criticism... It was the voice of Jesus Christ. Leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing to me. That's the only voice that matters, okay? We need to learn to love God and each other extravagantly. We do that by submitting ourselves and everything we have to Christ. And when that happens, and all the voices of this world begin to tell you, you're crazy. What are you doing? Don't dump out that oil. Don't, don't burn that cash. Who do you think you are? Right? We have friends that just went 
home to the West Coast to visit family. And we were talking last night about, hey man, you know, don't go crazy with this Jesus thing. I mean, it's cool, but you know, take it easy. Right? Don't be extravagant. That's what's so common in our society. But man, it's even in the things like when you give up a Saturday and you come to the church and you work yourself to the bone. I've watched some of you guys work so hard yesterday. That's giving yourself up. That's loving extravagantly because you're ministering. You know, you're not just fixing up a building. You're ministering to our children. You're ministering to our adults who are in that room. I'll tell you, it's not a trivial thing. One of the teachers came to me yesterday about in tears and said, you can't imagine how much this means to me. The ministry to her because of some of us got together and swung a hammer for a while. It's, it's so significant. Right? Leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing to me. You just listen in those moments to the only voice that matters. In fact, he's speaking to us right now, today. Let's listen to what he's saying. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. John 15. Let's pray.